So I wanted to talk tonight um, about uh, fear and trust, or fear and fearlessness. I was going to say I was going to talk about fear, but I have the aversive type, so I tend to pick negative topics. So I thought, well, let's let's try to balance it with something that won't sound like I'm just going to take everybody into a pit of despair and not bring you out the other side, you know. Buddhism is often accused of being this pessimistic religion because people hear, oh, it's about suffering, but they, they miss the part about the end of suffering. So I wanted to get that in quickly. And um, a little while ago, I was listening to a talk from uh, Joseph Goldstein, one of our senior teachers. Um, and he was saying that, uh, he was talking about his own practice, and he was saying that uh, fear had been just a tremendous issue for him uh, for a long time in his practice. Uh, and I, I was kind of surprised to hear that. And if you know Joseph, he's not somebody who seems fearful for sure um, and of course that's part of what happens with Dharma teachers that we project things onto them um, but uh, I also made the mistake at that moment of thinking oh well I don't have a lot of fear and that's hey and that's good you know in one place I'm very competitive as well as being very uh, so you know you're gee I mean, I don't have fear, and Joseph Goldstein does. Well, that's one point for me, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, I immediately started to notice all the fear and anxiety in my life and had to scratch that point off, start again, uh, as, as tends to happen when we uh, get prideful, especially around our practice. Um, So I, what I started to just notice uh, fear, I guess, more what we would call anxiety. And I guess when we talk about fear, uh, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of fear. Um, so I, I think what I'm kind of going to aim towards is talking more about stress and anxiety. But I want to start by um, sort of uh, looking at some broader issues. And first of all... Um, to talk about fear, uh, its purpo its purpose and its its um, its value. You know, one of the things that is very common uh, in uh, people who are just learning meditation is to sort of get this idea that uh, thoughts are bad and we're supposed to get rid of them. And the same thing can happen around fear. Oh, fear is bad, and I I should get rid of it. What's wrong with me that I have fear? And in fact, as I like to say about thoughts, if you didn't have, it's the same thing with fear. If you didn't have fear, you would probably die very quickly because you wouldn't have that protective mechanism that, that keeps you from uh, getting run over. You know, oh, there's a car coming. Isn't that, it's interesting that color and the light, the way the sun is shining up, boom, you know, oops, forgot about fear. So we, so, uh, fear is very useful, you know. Um, and, of course, it's instinctual. You know. it's, uh, and, and a lot of our practice, you know, is, is 
learning to live with those instinctive or uh, sort of biologically hardwired energies and and how to just be with them and again this is true with thought kind of well how can I stop thinking well you probably can't most of the time you may have moments so you know what the challenge of this practice and the challenge of Buddhism for me is that I don't get to have this black or white kind of situation where I get to stop having fear or stop having thoughts I have to learn to live with that and I have to learn to see it in all its uh, all its manifestations both in its positive and its negative and and then I'm going to at times try to let go and sometimes just try to live with it and I have to find out just with my own awareness what's the skillful thing to do each moment that's the difference between a fundamentalist religion which just gives you very clear instructions this is what you always do this is what's always right and this is always wrong you, know, you never have fear or you always have fear whatever I don't think there's actually a religious rule about that but if there were um, I um, as soon as I say something about fundamentalism I always start to think about something that I read on a blog and then so I'm going to try to avoid any of my rude comments this evening we'll see how far I get with that so uh, let me just talk about fear as um, as uh, an aspect of aversion and actually, uh, I, w- I was considering kind of. Um, usually, fear is considered to be a form of aversion. So, um, you know, the two kind of driving energies for most of our thoughts, feelings, and actions are desire and aversion. So, we want things or we want to get away from things. We want to increase pleasure or decrease displeasure. So fear is a tendency to move away. So it's a wanting to move away from something we could say. But as I was uh, in this kind of uh, fearful state, of course it was because I was experiencing fear that I decided to talk about it. That's what another secret of Dharma teaching. Um, I was noticing uh, that the, this third, the third poison with desire and aversion is called delusion. And, and, or, and it's kind of a confused state where we don't really know what's going on and I was noticing uh, how my mind was in this place where I couldn't think clearly when I was having anxiety and fear and I realized that uh, fear also has this strong delusive quality because it takes over our minds and it really narrows our vision and that's uh, one of the aspects of panic is that um, we only can see one thing that we should do and I remember reading about this um, when uh, when John Kennedy Jr. died um, they were talking about uh, how when someone's in that situation in a plane and it's starting to go down that they, people will get focused on just one thing 
trying to fix it in one way and not realizing that it might be something completely else that they should be doing, but just because the mind gets so trapped in one idea, fixated. And, and you know, that if, if it were the right idea, that would be great, but if it's the wrong idea, then you're just doomed. So um, this is an aspect of fear that I think is very important because it... Uh, it points to how difficult it is to come out of it with any clarity and mindfulness. If the mind is so focused and, and trapped in this one feeling and thought, it's very difficult then to, to break out of it. So, um, just to talk about some of the experiences of, in, in terms of the Dharma, what, how, how fear relates to the Dharma. Uh, the you know, central teaching, particularly in Theravada Buddhism uh, and in the Vipassana world, is the reminder of impermanence. And um, this is really seen as one of the key insights seeing seeing into, into impermanence it's also something the Buddha said should be remembered every day the, the, the daily recollections he recommended that we remember our that, that we are aging we are bound to, we're bound to get older that we're bound to get sick we're bound to die and that we're bound to lose everything that we love another cheerful set of things to think about every day um, the fifth contemplation is five daily contemplations. The fifth is on karma, which I will talk about a little bit more. But um, that so so impermanence is really central to the teachings. And of course, what is our instinctive response to impermanence? Fear, right? Because we can't hold on to something. We know it's going to change, and when we don't know what's going to happen, there's this natural tendency for the mind to go into fear. So, this practice in itself is obviously pointing us towards facing fear. Because it's saying we need to look at impermanence continually. And that means we're going to have to look at fear. And one of the classic um, mudras of the Buddha, one of the hand postures of the Buddha, is called the Abhaya Mudra, where he has his hand up and it's means the fearless mudra. Abhaya means fearless. So it's this, this saying, basically, bring it on. That's how in the contemporary vernacular. Um, I knew I'd wind up quoting him one way or another, but anyway. Um, you know, the, uh, the monastery, the Theravada monastery uh, up north is called Abhayagiri, just fearless mountain. There's also a beautiful image in, of, of this kind of the solidness. And really, uh, I've never actually talked to the monks about what that means, but how I hear that is that that's how we sit. We sit like a fearless mountain. Because you know? um, there's that description uh, of, of meditation as sitting like a mountain. So, um, so this is really the great challenge, to sit, sit like a, a fearless mountain. Another of the 
great teachings that comes out of the Zen tradition the teaching of don't know mind and this is the teaching that says instead of thinking that you know what's going to happen next or that you've got some grasp of the truth keep the idea that you really don't know what's going to happen next and that you really I don't know you know and and it's true <laughs> again this is true we try we spend a lot of time trying to create things in our lives so that we will be secure so that we'll know what's going to happen next well I know at least when I retire I'll have such and such income you know and then you fall over dead the next day you know I mean there's just you don't know um, but again a tremendous challenge you know to, to take take on this challenge of looking at of, of, of um, facing that that non-knowing so I want to talk uh, about first um, next about um, about just working with fear in, in our practice in, a, in very practical ways the tendency with fear is to immediately go into our heads and try to solve solve the thing that we think is a problem so uh, very common um, that fear will trigger restlessness we, the, the feeling that we've got to do something it's very hard to sit still with it so the classic Buddhist teaching of course is to connect with the body and this is really I think the starting point of working with fear not to try to solve the problem not to try to analyze it or even to have some special kind of spiritual Buddhist experience oh everything is impermanent I should just let go but to simply come into the body and say what does this feel like what does this fear feel like because the fear is telling you you have to do something it's not it's it's also saying don't look at me don't pay attention to me get get on with it you know, you're in danger now of course there are times when we're in, in danger and as I said before and and uh, we need to use our discrimination to determine if something does actually need to be done but much of the time when we're experiencing these kinds of energies it's just something that's conditioned in us and it's coming out of just this uh, really evolutionary force which you know the most fearful people were probably the ones who survived so just like the people that thought the most are the ones who survived so we are the result of all that right the, the people who didn't have fear and who weren't really thinking a lot the ones who had an easy time meditating you know got eaten up by the woolly mammoths you know So we've got this deep conditioning which says keep thinking all the time. Stay on your toes. Watch out. So when we come into our body we can feel that. 
And Wes Nisker talks about how we can actually, we're actually feeling, you know, the whole evolutionary, um, the, the result of evolution. We're f- feeling our body. We're feeling all that energy that came through all those millions of years of development in this, this, um, in this body, in this moment. So we come into that and feeling it. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting here talking, and as someone said, well, you know, speaking in front of people is scary. Generally, it's okay for me. It's not a terrible thing. But if I pay attention, which I'm trying to do as I talk, I can feel that there's this, this little charge here in my chest down here in my solar plexus. And, you know, there's there's some energy going on there. And I do, when I'm speaking, I try to hold that as part of, in, in the container of my own experience, not to really push it away. In fact, to kind of ride on it, you know, to use it. And that's one of the uses of fear, right? It's, it motivates you to kind of have energy, which is one of the positive things about fear. But in any case, we can just come into our body and start to really feel it. And what's interesting is that uh, probably, uh, maybe you can try this one. I'll ask people, you know, don't change your posture, just close your eyes. And see if, when you bring your attention into your body, there's anything that could be identified as fear or anxiety or stress. And if not, I'd like you to come up and finish the talk for me. so it's, it's remarkable that there's a little bit of this energy a lot of the time. And, and most of the time, that's okay. We don't have to do anything about it. Um, as I was considering this talk, though, I recalled that um, I was on a one-month retreat a couple of years ago. And as I was getting to a very deep place in the retreat and really had some of the deepest experiences of my, uh, of my meditative career, um, <laughs> when I was getting to the place of just that felt like the deepest and most profound stillness and I would go okay what you know why am I not getting enlightened in this moment was basically the question I didn't think it through quite that far but afterwards I said well what what was stop and I could feel this little kind of inkling of this not wanting to let go this fear so subtle and so subtle that I couldn't find the doorway into it you know I couldn't quite where is the place and I was just going let go let go you just and just wouldn't you know wouldn't release and that was after three weeks of sitting and, and getting you know and that's after 25 years of practicing to see that there, you know, that's, that's, there's that place that still won't let go. And that's perfectly all right. A little frustrating. I'd like to get enlightened before I die. because don't want to have to keep going through this. But um, just being able to be with it... First of all, what happens when we come into the body and we start to just pay attention is that we're taking ourselves out of our 
out of the thought process. And that allows us to, to undercut the, um, the spinning thoughts. Much of the time, when I find that I am lost in thought, and particularly when I'm finding that I can't stop thinking, I don't know if you've ever had that happen, but um, when, when it just seems like there's a steady stream of thoughts in my mind, and no matter how many times I note the thoughts, they just keep coming. If I drop into my body, that's when I feel what's running those thoughts. It's not that I'm. It's not that there's something I'm trying to solve. There's not some problem or some intellectual issue. It's that it's coming out of my body, and it's some form of anxiety or fear. So coming into the body allows me to get to the root of that experience. I'd like to talk then about um, trust. So, um, in the Buddhist tradition, we don't have the kind of uh, faith that's uh, um, central to the Judeo-Christian and Islamic traditions, Abrahamic traditions. But yet, uh, faith is actually still considered to be uh, a critical aspect of this path. And actually, if you think about what I've just said about that experience on that retreat, you can see why. That it's not about trusting or believing in something, but it's about trusting in the safety of letting go, it's trusting that you can let go and that it's okay. So the word that's translated as faith is sada, S-A-D-H-A. if I can kill another one. <laughs> These microphones are really uh, drainers of batteries. So, um, just fun fact. Um, so, um, the, the uh, book by Sharon Salzberg, which is called Faith, uh, talks about that starts by talking about that uh, a translation and that word sada is also often translated as trust or confidence so it's not a blind faith or a faith in a dogma but it's uh, faith more in our own ability to be, to be present and 
and a trust in, uh, I guess what I would say, the um, a, a trust, okay, this is what I think is the central trust, a trust in the law of karma. And I'll explain that. Because I, men- I mentioned karma before and I said I was going to talk about it. So, when we trust in the law of karma, it means that we trust that if we do the skillful actions, that the results will be beneficial. And that doesn't mean we're going to get what we want. And it doesn't mean that we're instantly going to have some pleasant or beneficial result, but that ultimately the results will be good. Um, So that's an aspect of trusting in the Dharma. I'm going to back up and put this in a larger Buddhist context, which is to say that the essential trust or faith that we have in Buddhism is faith in the three jewels of Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. So when when we did the chant after the sitting, there's the chanting the three refuges. Taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge in the Dharma, taking refuge in the Sangha. Taking refuge is really trusting or having faith. And it is the antidote to fear. So when we understand that uh, that we are safe, then we know. Then we let go of fear, right? The natural response to the sense of safety. So what we take refuge in then is the Buddha, and not in the historical Buddha because he's dead and can't help us anymore. Um, but in first of all that awareness, the word Buddha means awake. But when we're talking about the B- Buddha in this way, we're talking about what Ajahn Chah calls the one who knows. That aspect of us, consciousness, just awareness itself. So we trust that just by being present, we're going to... We, that we can... Okay, how to put this? I know this one. No. Um... So uh, let me bring it into this with fear. That we trust that if we just allow ourselves to feel the fear, that we will be okay. Again, there's this tendency with these energies to think that something has to be done and that the way to resolve fear is to do something to change the situation so that we're not in danger. We don't have this problem. But what trusting in Buddha means is that we trust that just being with the experience itself will make it okay. And this is the power of mindfulness. That mindfulness is not just a an observing experience. It is that. That's the, that's the main tool that we use. We observe, we look, we try to experience something. But what mindfulness brings along with it is this balancing quality that brings us into a sense of stability and a sense of um, well, okayness. Um, so this is the first 
aspect of the refuges that we that we trust in. There is, and that that can sound simple in a way, but just to acknowledge and recognize that our ten this is not our natural tendency to pay attention to our experience, to trust that paying attention to our experience will make will in and of itself make the experience more manageable. The tendency is to, when we have a feeling, to try to do something about that. And this is not just about fear, desire, aversion, you know, any any craving or discomfort. There's a tendency to think something has to be done. And of course, something can be done and you can change things and that's okay. But then what happens is that it gets to be not okay again. That's the first noble truth, the truth of dukkha. Right? That no matter what you do to try to arrange things so that there is no fear in your life, or there, there is no discomfort, or, no, or that there's nothing lacking, you're always going to come up against the limitations of each experience. And you're always going to come up against the fact that even when you arrive at a pleasant place, it's going to change quickly or slowly because of the truth of impermanence. So that's why the Buddha says, you know, chasing after something, trying to fix things is a fruitless and vain effort. You're never going to get everything right. What you need to do is stop and learn to be with. And again, there's this way in which that can sound like, oh, I just have to suffer through everything. But this is the power of mindfulness, that it actually has this, it tends to dissolve suffering, or at least cool suffering. So the second aspect of the refuges is the truth of the Dharma, the, or the truth of the way things are, as Ajahn Chah it. And this is, you know, I got ahead of myself a little bit talking about karma, but this is uh, uh, looking at the, the, these aspects of the teachings. So when we trust in karma, we don't have to get ahead of ourselves. You know, we take the action and then trust that the results will take care of themselves. There's... Uh, you know, I work a lot with uh, working with Buddhism and the Twelve Steps, and uh, one of the central things that people deal with is trying to kind of fix things. And this is a very typical sort of alcoholic addict thing: trying to control things, trying to fix things, and this learning that um, that if we take care of what's happening in this moment, that, that that the future will take care of itself, is really a key thing for a lot of people in recovery. Trusting in impermanence. Trusting that things will keep changing and it's okay. Uh, it's kind of like a surfing uh, image for me. That way that when we start to really pay attention to the way things are, that there is this constant movement and flow and the immediate response to that can be fear and, and in fact um, 
you know, part of the classic unfolding of what's called the progress of insight is a stage of tremendous fear. But I, I think it's just quite naturally when people uh, first start to see that, there's this sense of fear. But once we stay with it for a little while, we start to see that it's perfectly manageable. It's perfectly okay. And that, in fact, stasis, if everything just didn't change, would actually be much worse. And can you imagine having to sit here and listen to me give a Dharma talk for the rest of your life? I mean, that would just be a nightmare. And my voice would go out pretty quickly, too. So. Something else I was going to say about impermanence. It'll come back. So, uh, in the three classic uh, characteristics the Buddha talked about, impermanence, then suffering or dukkha you know something you kind of say well how am I supposed to trust in in suffering how do I trust in dukkha but again what we start to see is that when we allow ourselves to just be touched by and to touch the truth of the difficulties of being a being that we can hold it okay that it's perfectly okay. What what really starts to become clear is that there is something that consciousness itself isn't touched by this. This is one of the teachings that uh, Ajahn Chah is pointing to, and that uh, the Advaita Vedanta teachers also point to that that um, when we start to experience life from the place of awareness, that that awareness is not going through the same. Uh, that awareness isn't touched in the same way um, as uh, as our normal pro- mental and physical processes are, and so we see that again that we can hold these experiences without being overwhelmed by them. And again, as we see, as we develop this um, this strength of mindfulness, it becomes. Dukkha becomes a completely manageable and natural thing. It's something that, just like breathing, it's just, ah, this is just the way things are. Um, You know, I I have a nine-year-old daughter, and watching her uh, in her childhood, particularly from like five on, um, is kind of seeing uh, how the magic the sense of magic that children have. And that's beautiful in some ways, and it's an illusion. And I think it's, it's probably a necessary illusion because children aren't really able to hold and manage uh, all the truth of, of suffering, of life suffering. And, people, and children who are exposed to that are often really, really uh, injured, I think, um, traumatized. But, um, you know, as children move into becoming teenagers there's this this is part of the huge tumult I think of becoming a teenager which is that you're now old enough to do what you want to do and you start to see the suffering but you don't want to let go of the magic and and of course the, there's certain ways in which you know I don't think we should let go of the magic you know that we we need to also uh, find ways to touch that but to understand that 
that's not the whole of life. Uh, and I think that a lot of our, you know, sometimes lack of maturity is is the uh, resistance to to accepting the whole the whole of life, the suffering and the joy of life, and kind of wanting to, like children, to hang on to all the joy. And when there isn't joy, you know, you have a meltdown. That's what happens at our house. In fact, I I kind of have traced my own alcoholism and I think it's probably pretty common for alcoholics to be kind of uh, have gone through a, tr- a particularly difficult uh, process with this as you come into being a teenager and I think alcohol and drugs are a way of attempting to recapture or hold on to that that magic um, which of course doesn't work but it takes about 20 years to figure that out so for most of us So learning to trust impermanence, learning to trust dukkha, learning to trust our corelessness. And again, one of the things that really brings up fear for people when they touch that place or they touch that non-place that they thought they were. Wow, that was a good sentence. I'd like to see if we could. When we start to see the transparency of our own identity and the really lack of substance of who we thought we are can be a tremendous cause of fear. And again, it has to really, we have to learn. We have to learn that place. We have to touch that place. We have to open to it over and over and see it clearly before it becomes something that we hold quite naturally and it becomes completely okay. Of course, this is just recognizing the reality but uh, but to see it and accept it can be very difficult at first. Um, the you know, oftentimes people when they just have their first experience of following the breath, people come up and go. I shouldn't say oftentimes. That one of the one of the things that happens to some people is that the first time they come to a meditation group and they and they're paying attention to the breath there just this tremendous fear comes over them and they all of a sudden they find they can't breathe right or their heart starts to go really fast they'll come up afterwards and say you know it's really hard for me as soon as I started to feel my breath I I couldn't breathe naturally anymore I just started to feel this fear and uh, this is really I think a moment of insight that doesn't have a foundation in practice so if we have a moment of... This is one of the reasons why there used to be secret teachings. They don't make them secret anymore. But um, because if we have kind of the insight into emptiness without uh, a foundation in practice that can hold it, it can really jolt uh, and cause a lot of, of fear and panic. But in in all these ways, we we learn to trust the Dharma, trust all these aspects of the Dharma. And they allow us then, these things that normally would trigger fear, they become things that we can hold and we can manage. So the third aspect of the of the refuges that, that we take refuge in is the Sangha. Typically we talk about the Sangha as being the community. And that's certainly one of the ways 
in which we can see that we're okay when we see that what we are going through is shared by a whole group. This is something that, of course, is very true in the 12-step community, too, because we get to hear people's uh, fears and hear people's struggles and realize that we're not alone with them. But just being in silent meditation with people and recognizing, as as I hope you do, that what's going on in your mind is also going on in different ways in everyone else's mind around you. That you're not alone with this experience. This again allows us to see that it's okay. Everyone is sitting here and we're dealing with the thoughts and feelings that come up, the sensations in the body, and it's difficult. But we do it together and it gives us all strength to do it. The uh, way that um, Ajahnamro talks about Sangha interestingly is he says that Sangha is actually the the um, life that one chooses to live when one sees clearly the Dharma so he says that when you see the truth of karma when you see the truth of impermanence and suffering that you naturally live a um, non-harming life and that Sangha is, is sort of the expression of the Dharma, the manifestation of the Dharma when the Dharma is understood. Um, and this is, again, something that we can trust in, right? To live this life. Of, but the Buddha, and I know James uses this phrase a lot, the bliss of blamelessness. So, um, I managed to leave a few minutes if anyone wants to... Um, make any comments or ask any questions about fear or fearlessness or uh, if you need directions to part or whatever you need we're here to serve Or something I found useful with uh, working with clients, which is to make a semantic distinction between fear and anxiety. If you can define fear as something that could be dangerous right there in that very moment, and anxiety is something that we're projecting a story into the future. So if I'm driving down the freeway and there's headlights coming at me in my lane, I mean that's you know that's defined as fear. I think most of 99.99% of what we experience as fear is really in this context, anxiety, a story of what's liable to happen in the future. So the fear of public speaking is a story. People won't like me, but that's not happening in the moment. It's what's going to happen somewhere later. So sorting out the distinction can... Especially if you can take a look at anxiety as a story we're telling ourselves. It might be a true story, but nevertheless it's a story. That's a way of separating from it. as a way of taking a look at it and saying, is this true? And having the mindfulness having the space around it to uh, hold it in that way. So making that semantic distinction, defining the words that way can be useful. Charge of energy, right here, right now. 
yeah. Uh, if fear is sort of comes out of you know years and years of evolution, and it's the reason, as you said, why we're here. Without it, there'd be no survival mechanism, um, or it, it is a survival mechanism. Then why is it sometimes if it's that keeps us alive? But yet, sometimes it actually leads to our death, like in the, in the case you mentioned with John F. Kennedy Jr. Or why does it cause anxiety or pain in the first place? If it's out of nature, it's almost like nature made a mistake or nature's bad. So how do I think about that? I don't know. There's certain ways in which I don't think nature is logical. Um, I think that uh, that uh, when nature finds something that works, it just does it over and over. You know, because nature doesn't care if you're um, if you don't like the emotion. Just ca- it just wants to motivate you to survive. I think that I, I mean I, I guess I'm sort of of that school that survival is really the driving energy between behind life. All life cares about is continuing to live. It doesn't care about becoming enlightened, you know, or having a nice day, you know, where you can relax and not feel anxiety. It just wants to survive. And that's why we, the sex urge is so powerful. You know, I mean, wouldn't it be nice to be able to turn it off for the men in the group, anyway? Um, you know, but we don't get that option, right? It, it's just it's hardwired because that's that's all life cares about. Just make more of me, keep me going. Uh, so, generally, of course, feeling pleasant is helpful for survival because then you don't want to kill yourself, for instance. Whatever. But um, but if it comes down to a choice between am I going to live or am, am I going to feel comfortable, you know, the, the your organism is going to choose living uncomfortably. That, that's my take on it. But that's I, I never heard the Buddha say anything about it, so I'm not claiming that to be a Buddhist answer. So, actually, we just have a couple minutes, so, yeah, one more. Um, when you shared about your experience in the retreat of, um, you know, really coming to a place of peace, and and then you were also speaking about faith and that it's this trust and faith in that the experience will hold you or however you put it. Um, it's, I just want to... I, I wonder if you could talk more about the faith aspect and the, um, and, and the most like 
the wisdom or the knowing of you know it's kind of like all your 20 years of practice and your three weeks of sitting quietly got you to that place so you had to kind of put out some effort to get there so it's not really like you're having to I think it's it's not really like you're having to have faith really <laughs> you know you're experiencing it is getting you there so I, I'm not really clear on the faith part because it's almost like the faith the faith came from the experience I don't know if that makes sense I it's a I see it as incremental for you to come in here and sit down and close your eyes for the first time is an act of faith because why would you do it if you didn't think that you don't know what's going to happen but you believe some part of you trusts that oh this this seems like it's going to be helpful but you don't know that you're just going on some something in you and it's that's called right view right so that you have this like sense that that's the thing to do and you do it and you go wow that's pretty good and then you hear the teachers talking about oh I was on a retreat I think a retreat that sounds kind of you know and you then you have enough courage and enough trust enough faith then to, to go on a weekend retreat and then geez somebody oh they have a month long you know and and you keep going and you know you wake up in the morning and you go oh god I just want to go back to bed but I think it's valuable for me to sit so I'm just going to sit anyway, even though it doesn't feel like it's worth doing. So that's how I see faith as developing through our experience, very much hand-in-hand hand with our experience. It's not, it's not something that um, just blossoms fully. It's little by little. And that's why it's very reliable. That's when I talked about having a foundation in practice. If you have an insight before you have a foundation in practice, that foundation in practice is built up right through your experiences through difficulties through pleasant moments through moments of insight and and all of that uh, develops the trust in the process and, and deepens it and so that it just that just keeps progressing uh, and I think of I you know if you look at what the state the first stage of enlightenment is it's the one of the things characteristics of the first stage of enlightenment is that there is no more doubt so, obviously, that means there's perfect, or there's, I don't want to say perfect, but there's tremendous faith that, that allows that to happen. So, it's, it's built, you know, and, and, and so, if that's one of the aspects of that breakthrough, then it means we've got to be developing our faith continually, and that's got to be growing. Or we're never going to have that breakthrough. Thanks. So uh, we're out of time. Let's just do one minute of loving kindness. In fact, let's do this as a dedication of merit. And we come here together to practice to deepen our own understanding of the Dharma, our own peace and mindfulness, 
And when we go out from here, we can take that with us in the ways that we've grown and share that with the others in our lives. And there is the potential that each person that we share this wisdom and this peace with will share it with others and in that way radiate outward the spirit of this practice is that we practice for all beings we can see this as a mystical or metaphysical idea and we can see it as a practical one in our own lives so may our efforts our practice be of benefit for all beings may our own hearts open and may the hearts of all beings open may all beings be free from fear may all beings be free from suffering Thank you very much. Very nice to see all of you. Have a wonderful Labor Day or laborless day.